Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, episode number eight, human-centered. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. In this episode, we're talking about essential number two, human-centered, with help from our very special guest, strategist, advisor, educated, author, Rashad Tabakawala, who we'll meet and chat later. Steve, that was a great interview and, and uh, look forward to the, the sharing that with everyone. I, I wanted to jump in. The first question is, you purposely, and you alluded to this in a prior episode, you didn't call this HR human resources. You, you particularly were focused on human-centered. Walk me through why human-centered or, or why not customer-centric or customer-centered Tell me about that. Yeah, well, actually, when I started working on the essentials, I had this as customer-centric or customer-centered or customer-obsessed or something like that for probably at least a year. And I started to get some pushback from people, not that that wasn't a good term, but a bunch of people said, you know, isn't customer-centric just kind of lip service? Like, how many companies Mm. are really customer-centric? Right. Yeah, it's, it's always the it's always the center square on the bingo card, right? Where we put the customer at the center. I mean that you know you, right. you can always close your eyes and read that the, everywhere, right? Yeah, we got the uh, this chair at the conference table represents the customer, right. or whatever. I don't think there's anything wrong with that fundamentally. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to try to do was, as I talk about in the book, is kind of open the aperture on how we think about this because certainly customers are critical to business strategy to being more remarkable. What I wanted to kind of lift up was, uh, you know, rather than think about customers as kind of this nameless, faceless, amorphous set of uh, targets, as we often like to talk about it, mm-hmm. uh, let's think about it more from a humanity perspective. Let's think about them as humans. And I think that both elevates and broadens the way we think about it. But the other thing it does is it really brings in more the uh, as, as we talk about with Rashad, more the empathy, the, the right, right, right. more the right brain, a little bit less left brain. And mm-hmm. as I talk about a lot throughout the whole book, what we're trying to do when we're trying to become more remarkable is we're trying to create a powerful story that makes a strong impression on our core customers. But we're also trying to create a story that they will share, that they'll literally remark upon. And I think if we spend mm-hmm. more time mm-hmm digging into the emotional side of it, that unlocks some other opportunities in a way that sometimes being customer-centered or customer-obsessed doesn't quite do the job. I'm, la- I'm glad you used the word unlock because, you know, throughout my career, and, and it's probably been the case in, in many of us, we, we always thought, you know, being customer-centric would be the great unlock, right? All we need to do is be customer-centric, and that would fix everything. Yet the evidence is pretty clear that whether you're stating that or whether they're in the center, it doesn't always work. I love the, you know, the, the way you begin the chapter. And, and I have this great frustration that I'll share with you, which is, you know, many, many uh, of the services I subscribe to, one in particular where I get my phone and all those other things, you know, that you, you try to call them and it says, you know, we're, our, our call volume is greater than anticipated. It's been like that for 10 years. Right, right. <laughs> 10 years. Why don't you try us online? It is clearly trying to move me to the online channel and out of a more expensive channel. But it's always predicated on the, hey, you know, we, we, we're out of bandwidth. We, like, we hadn't anticipated that people would call more in the COVID crisis. Like, you know, really. So how is it not, I guess, and this is what you're leading to, how is being customer-centric not become the big unlock without having customer empathy 
and understanding what you start talking about is this these eight different types of humanity. So why don't you take me through the eight different types of humanity briefly? There's one particular I want to focus on. I start with uh, probably the most obvious one, which is consumers or customers. The second one is tribes or or groups of, of affiliated customers. The third is networks. So the distinction between tribes and networks is tribes are typically people that are organized around a particular idea, and we may actually know them mm. um, personally, like a book club, let's say, whereas networks would be more our social networks where we may not, we may be connected to them in some way, but don't really have a close personal relationship. The fourth are uh, our employees or associates, as lots of retailers like to call them. The fifth are investors. The sixth are collaborators, which is a wide range of different potential folks. The seventh would be the communities in which we operate or or somehow or other directly impact. Maybe we um, manufacture products there or or, um, contract have contract labor there. And then the last one is the planet more broadly. And so, yeah, you 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 start it at a micro level, and then you get to the very broad level, right? The one that jumps out at me that that I think we should talk about some more is this idea of collaboration. When you and I were starting our career, we might have referred to that or some version of that as coopetition. In other words, sometimes it makes sense to collaborate with your competitors. And and is that what you mean by the the collaborators, or is that a broader network term? And how does that how does that fit in this human centered? idea of yours? Well, I think there are two fundamental groups here. One would be what we might think about more in the traditional sense, which are uh, partners that help us do our core business. So vendors, agencies, hmm. th- those those sorts of things. Um, and I don't know that that, I mean, maybe, we, maybe the way we work with them is a little bit different, but I think those are kind of the usual inputs into a business system. I think what's new and, and really more like the coopetition idea is who can we collaborate more creatively, maybe uh, co-create a new business idea, uh, or as I think coopetition gets to is maybe this is actually a company that we consider to be a bit of a competitor, but perhaps we can find ways to operate more together in our in our own interest. I think what's happened between the days of coopetition. I don't know when that first became popular. It was a while ago, I guess. And the last 10 plus years has been how the boundaries have gone down in many respects because we're just all connected as consumers, but as as business entities, more obviously, uh, in ways that we weren't before. So I think that just opens up new possibilities for cooperation or or co-creation that just weren't weren't possible pre-internet largely and internet of things Mm. so when you sit with clients and and in your past lives and you start to think about you know transitioning from being customer centric to human centered what are the kind of key drivers for you that you look for what is it like how do you get from point a to b i'm i'm so interested is it is it data i mean we talked to rashad about the essence of data uh, a little bit which is fun but certainly data has got to be part of it i mean whether it's segmentation or some other approach what and how do you get from thinking about this as segmentation and market penetration numbers to something that looks more like empathy and human well i think one thing that's important to do and i often do this not just on this essential but more broadly is to ask the client what does good look like to them? And going back to something you were saying earlier, clearly, whether it's by design or, or just neglect, I guess you could say, clearly in some companies, good looks, you know, if you take the call center example, 
we handled X number of calls per hour. Our average talk time was lower this month than it was done last time. It's about efficiency. It's not necessarily about effectiveness. And that, to me, is a really big fork in the road with a lot of companies is what are they really aiming for? Not that every company doesn't have aspects of, of efficiency, but if you're really trying to be remarkable, the, the thing that's really going to differentiate you is to be much more effective, to have much more of an impact, to tell a story that, mm-hmm. that needs to be told. So that, that, to me, is kind of the biggest framing question. Sometimes, of course, we discover that one side of the house is all about cost cutting. The other side of the house is all about raving fans, net promoter score. And, and yeah, yeah. there's an organizational issue that has to be sorted out. But that, that I think is one of the things to really focus on in the beginning. When, when we start to talk more about what part of the issue uh, or business design innovation we want to work on, a lot of times I suggest going through some form of customer journey mapping hmm. to try to understand where there are opportunities to eliminate a pain point. But w- what would really cause um, a really distinctive, memorable experience to occur? A lot of times that leads you to try to think at a more elevated level about what the customer outcome is. Because a lot of times customers say they want a particular a product uh, and Rashad, I know he's talks about this a lot in his book. Uh, you know, there's lots of products that serve a much higher purpose than just simply quenching your thirst or sure. carrying cleaning your, your or... hair or et cetera. Right. So what, what is that emotional content? What is that sense of belonging perhaps we're creating for the customer or a sense of distinctiveness? You know, what is that thing that is, People like, as Seth Godin talks a lot about, people like me do Mm. things like this. So I think you have to apply different techniques. Some of these are consumer research techniques. Uh, I think human-centered design offers a lot of opportunities to to try to find kind of these higher-order outcomes that go beyond just uh, a more kind of left-brain, solve-the-problem, close-a-gap kind of analysis, which I think is at the heart of a lot of um, of retailers' Mm. processes. It really really gets back to thinking about that brand ladder, you know, the, the technical, functional, and emotional benefits of the product. There's a, there's a quote about, you know, I think it's in, uh, in Rashad's book about um, Revlon said, listen, we make cosmetics in the, in the lab, but we sell hope in the stores, which I think is, is a fascinating insight. And, and tell me when you talk to your clients and when you think about this, what is, other than results, financial results, is, is there a best way to measure if you're making progress is that the is that the willingness to recommend scores is that the best proxy for making progress along understanding the customer do you do you have one that's a favorite i mean they all have shortcomings or and strengths i certainly believe net promoter scores are is a helpful tool in a lot of situations to get to the next level often you have to unpeel the results if you're getting high won't talk about the negative side but if you're getting yeah. high favorability high willingness to recommend what are those things that consumers are saying about you? Hmm. Because I think that can unlock the storytelling. Like there's not a lot of, at least in most of the more straightforward ways that these surveys are executed, there's not a lot of color around the why. That's the interesting thing is to get underneath what's really driving your willingness to recommend. What are you saying to other people? Now, and these are things I'm not certainly an expert on, but I know there are, there are new techniques to try to glean that from social media 
comments yeah. and retweets and sentiment uh, uh, sentiment yeah, sentiment and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so yeah, yeah. there's a lot of really interesting things that are that are going on now that can potentially help you with that. But I think you fundamentally need to understand well, ask yourself what is the story you want to have told about mm. your brand? How are you impacting consumers in both a rational way as well as a somewhat, I don't like the word irrational, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, you know, a feeling way. Emotional. Uh, yeah. yeah. What's, what's, what is yeah, that right? feeling you're trying to create? Yeah. You know, there's, it's different, of course, for a lot of different kinds of products. So it's hard to say that this one thing will, will work, but I think it's the storytelling that you want to really get into and net promoter score can help you see maybe you have an issue, but it can also give you a jumping off point to try to figure out how do you, how do you take that out into future product service design or advertising or social media strategies? One of the fun things about this series for me, one of the many is, is how we were trying to align the guests with the topic. And I think if Rashad hadn't written the book on uh, bringing uh, soul to business and uh, if he wasn't doing that work and thinking those things, we would create them because it it, it nests so well with your conception. So why don't we bring on uh, Rashad and, and uh, he can uh, talk about his book and uh, let's have the great discussion with him. Well, we're delighted to have Rashad Tabakawala with us as our special guest for today's episode. So welcome, Rashad. Would you mind uh, introducing yourself a little bit more? Tell us about yourself. Tell us about the work you do. Sure. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I'm Rishad Tabakawala. I am today a author of a book called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. I am an advisor to many companies, including one that I worked for for 38 years called the Publicist Group, where I serve roles as the chief strategy office, chief strategist as well as the chief growth officer. And I am also a speaker slash teacher and I run a foundation that helps 10,000 people in India. So let's let's first start off talking about your book. What's what's the big idea behind the book? And I guess fundamentally, I'm always interested in what, what motivated authors to write their book. The big idea behind the book are that a company cannot be better than the people that work in the company. Most companies grow or fail because of the people in the company. People are carbon-based analog-feeling characters, even though we are living in a data-driven digital world. Successful companies find ways to integrate the spreadsheet, which is the data, the technology, and the math of a business, with the story, which is the culture, the employees, the purpose, and the values of a business. Companies that integrate the two, like Southwest and the airline business, or Costco, or Adobe, or recently Microsoft, tend to do better than companies that fixate only on data and math and outcomes, mm-hmm. and better than companies that only focus on culture and storytelling. So to give you an idea, Wells Fargo is a company that tilted only towards the math and has never recovered. WeWork is one that tilted completely towards the storytelling and got high on themselves. And if you look in category after category, companies that combine the two win. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wrote this book is in this age of data fixation, businesses were basically losing their way, losing talent and losing the reason they existed because they all thought they could be a mini Google or a mini Amazon. (laughs) Right. Rashad, is it the case that as you looked at this over the course of your your career, I'm kind of curious about your journey because I, I, not to bring Russian 
communism, Marxism into the conversation. But, you know, the concept to me is interesting that you have uh, a degrees in advanced mathematics and an MBA in finance, so you, you would be known as a, as a quant. Yet, the way you talk, it's almost like uh, this, this idea of a class trader. In other words, being a quant isn't good enough because there's, there's this, you know, this, this specter or this reputation that that's what you need in a company to help turn it around. What you're saying is you need a mix of both. And you wrote the book about that. When did that start to dawn upon you in the work you were doing over the past decades? Was there a moment of of enlightenment where it kind of hits you? Did you look at the data to arrive at that decision? Or walk me through that. I was an aspiring writer before I did my mathematics degree because my parents in India basically said two problems about this writing career you intend to have. Number one is you have nothing to say. You're a 20-year-old. You have no clue what the hell you're talking about. And number two is it's highly unlikely anybody will basically pay for you the stuff you write. So we would suggest that you learn something that helps you think. And so kicking and screaming, I basically got a degree in advanced mathematics, but I actually ended up being ranked fifth in all of India that year. So I actually learned how to do it well. But when I graduated with a degree in finance and marketing from the University of Chicago, I selected a career that was combining the two. In those Mm -hmm. days, the Leo Burnett Advertising Agency was as much as a consulting company. This was in the early 1980s, uh, working for a select number of clients. And I began to understand both the importance of the math in making the case for our clients, but clearly working in the marketing and advertising business, the impact of storytelling and culture. So I always thought that it was true. What changed me was the last eight, 10 years, especially as I led many of our digital and data initiatives, that more and more people were starting to tilt towards the left. They were tilting towards the data. And many people in management who I admired a lot, both at our clients and everywhere else, were starting to basically make decisions where I began to understand that they were being misled. They were being misled Hmm. because they're very smart people. So they were being misled in part because they were not as, I would say, aware of how technology and data and math worked, which because of my background and because of what I was doing, I was a little more aware. I wouldn't say I'm good, but I was more aware. And so I thought that the best way to convince someone who believes that the math is the answer is to use math to show them that math is not the answer. (laughs) And that is what I eventually did. I basically began to prove to them that everything that they believed about math being the answer, I used math to show them they were wrong. And, th- and that's where I came up with this tongue-in-cheek kind of class trader idea. Yes, like, yes. You're, so you're, it was like a Trojan horse. I basically yeah. said, I, I, or I guess the, the, the right thing is judo, where you use the other person's mm. strength against them. And that is what made me do it. And, 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 and But more importantly, as you see, for those who read the book, the book really is 12 different books in one, in that mm-hmm. they talk about 12 different things from leadership to managing change to obviously extracting meaning from math. But in every case, I show that the common theme are people who follow balanced, nuanced perspectives. That doesn't mean you blend the two to be goo, but sometimes you have to go chocolate and sometimes you have to go vanilla. But very few people want a chocolate, vanilla, goo. 
<laughs> right? And so the whole idea is you need to know both sides and then move forward. But because of the technology valuations of companies, and in part, by the way, because mm-hmm. many people in senior management who are intensely smart, but they did not grow up with these technologies, sometimes feel insecure about making such decisions and they overcompensate. I don't want to dwell on the idea of AI because we could have a whole podcast about artificial intelligence. One of the things you've said, um, I was watching a, a presentation you did online to the folks at, at Google, is said, listen, you know, be careful because if all you are is quantitative, then AI is going to replace you. Um, so there's a risk that carrying your logic to its furthest reaches, the the left side of the brain is Dan Pink. You mentioned Dan Pink in your book. Yeah. A good friend of mine been on the podcast. AI, though, is is somewhat meaningless, and you may or may not agree with it, the context and the judgment that's part of the decision-making canvas. So, again, I don't want to dwell on AI, but what do you what are your thoughts around AI's potential to tilt your book's meaning all the way over to better focus on the soul before the, AI, the machine takes over in its judgment day kind of thing? Well, what I would do is I prove to people that even if they believe that AI is over-exaggerated and will take time to come, I would basically simply say, if you make a decision based on what the spreadsheet tells you, a computer can give you that answer. Forget about even AI. So in effect, you're basically telling me that the numbers make the decision. So why are you existing? You're existing because you then place that number with in a perspective. You bring a point of view. You interrogate the number. You put it in a broader context. The truth of the matter is, I ask people what were the last 10 decisions they made. How many of those decisions were primarily based on data and how many were primarily based on either a combination or more an emotional decision? Seven out of 10, in most cases, were not data-driven decisions. And you think about, you know, I simply say, okay, what watch do you wear? What car do you ride? And are you a parent? And if you aren't driving a Toyota Camry or wearing a Swatch, you're basically paying a lot of money for something that has no functional benefit that no spreadsheet will tell you is justified at all. If you do a ROI on parentage, you would never have parent, you would never have kids. So, so the reality of it is in every decision, we actually make decisions with our hearts and we use numbers to justify what we just did. One of the things I talk about in the book is... Um, and I think this is sometimes attributed to Steve Jobs. I'm not sure where it originally came from, but this idea that people buy the story before they buy the product. Yes. And, um, you know, I think that's just so powerful, certainly in the context of what I talk about in remarkable retail. But, but, but I'm curious, um, maybe in a slightly different direction here, but one of the things you get into that I really, I really love, and I, I just touch on it slightly in my work is this idea that things like vulnerability and empathy need to be more at the forefront of our of our business lives and our and our culture. But it seems to me, at least some of the cultures I've worked in, that being vulnerable and being empathetic is like the last thing you want to do if you're going to succeed. You know, never let them see you sweat, that sort of idea. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I did a analysis. A part of what I was doing, because I had the idea that I was going to write the book about five years ago. And so that for five years I was watching uh and listening and hearing and trying to understand. And one of the things was what makes great leaders. And I read widely, and obviously I had the access to lots of different companies and people around the world. And I began to see who was good leader, who I believed were good leaders. And I identified these five characteristics. And what was surprising to me that only one of the five characteristics, or maybe 
1.5 of the five, are actually, again, spreadsheet left brain driven. The first and very important is capability, which is no one will follow you if you don't know what you're doing. The second one is integrity. But integrity has certain, obviously, emotional elements to it, but there's also rational elements, which is, are you being true to the data? Are you recognizing reality? But the other three, which were empathy, vulnerability, and inspiration, were really either about yourself or other people, and they were primarily emotional. And what differentiated the better leaders was every leader has to have capability and at some stage has to have integrity. You can't be a long-term leader without those two. My sense is you need to be capable and you need to have some form of integrity. And the integrity simply is like, do you actually understand reality and the facts? But the reason for the other three is empathy basically means you are thinking about other people. And if you aren't thinking about either your customers, your employees, or your suppliers, how the hell do you run a good company? So it's rational to be empathetic. Empathetic doesn't necessarily mean you feel, but you have to feel your customer, your employee. I mean, you have to feel about your customer, your employee, and your suppliers just to get the best out of them. Vulnerability is two forms. Obviously, you know, Bill Brown and others have written about this. But to me, vulnerability were two parts of it. One part of vulnerability is that I am making mistakes and that people can see me sweat or not sweat or whatever. But the other one, which is even a broader one, is to recognize that you can be wrong and you will not have all the answers. And as a result of that, you surround yourself with two sets of people. Both sets of people are necessary. One are people who have capabilities that you do not have because you can't be great at everything. So you build a team with other people. The other one is to make sure you have at least one or two people who basically point out that you are full of shit from time to time. Okay, which is I call it, which I call the turd on the table, and you will see that the difference between Steve Ballmer and Satya Nadella, same company, they both have been there for a long time, but one company, the Satya Nadella company, is a completely different company because he basically said we're going to go from a know-it-all mindset to a learn-it-all mindset, and he basically said no more stack ranking and all this math nonsense, but he delivers better results. But his basic belief is we have to change. And among the things he decided to change was Bama would jump up and down windows, windows, windows. There's no window operating division anymore in Microsoft. And so I show again and again that what eventually makes a company succeed is, in addition to being on trend, which is you can't succeed selling typewriters today, is the leader, in addition to being capable and having integrity, has at least two of these other three, if not all three in spades, which is empathy, vulnerability, and inspiration. So how does that relate to, you know, one of the things we keep coming back to in this podcast, at least so far, has been why some companies are able to consistently innovate and stay ahead of where things are going, and others just defend the status quo, have a bias towards inaction, those those sorts of things. How does this relate to those companies that are consistently able to change and innovate and transform their cultures? They're built very much around those two words of vulnerability and empathy. The reason is this. Um, smart leaders and smart companies know that change sucks. They're empathetic about the fact that change absolutely goddamn sucks, right? Because when you have to change, you don't know what you're doing. Often it's because something has gone wrong. 
And when someone basically tells me change is good, I say, I'm happy. Why don't you change if it's so good? So they recognize that change sucks. And so instead of just saying change is good for you, change is good for the company and change is the future, they basically say change is difficult. We will explain to you why you need to change. Change is difficult. Here is why it's good for you. Change is difficult. We will provide you with training and resources to change. That's the empathy part. Innovation to me is fresh, insightful connections. Fresh, insightful connections requires two things. The first thing is it requires diverse points of view and diverse people. If you don't have diversity in the room and all of them also have the right to speak up, you can't really have innovation because you don't have fresh, insightful connections. But vulnerability means people should be fair enough trying and testing new ideas and failing and basically making sure that they put together the right teams, which again is connected teams. So to me, vulnerability and empathy are driving factors of change management and innovation. Any retailers you would point to as really being good at applying these principles? You know, I would say that there are many retailers, Costco and Starbucks are ones I mentioned in my book. And I sort of look at how Costco did relative to Walmart till the new CEO of Walmart came on, right? And it was night and day, their stock performance, even though Costco paid its employees more and gave them much more freeway. Starbucks in both how they've adapted, including to when they run into trouble because of Black Lives Matter, et cetera. And both of these companies also have very nicely kept both their space as well as integrated into technology. And, you know, some of the best apps in the world tend to be apps from companies like Starbucks and Walgreens, which are all basically retail companies. Like Steve's book, uh, your book was penned in the before time, pre-COVID. And as you said, you've been working on it for five years. If you were to write that book today, would you change anything? Is Has the past eight or nine months taught you something different or is it reinforced your beliefs that, that frame that book? So there are two there are two answers to this. One is the book has turned out to be even more relevant in post-COVID times, though it was doing really well for the six weeks before we knew there was COVID, is primarily because it's talking about the importance of humans and technology, et cetera. And there's a chapter in the book about how to manage distributed workforces. So people said, how did you know that? How do you manage change under pressure? How do you know that? Right? Right. How do you lead with soul? How did you know that? And I said, I didn't know about COVID-19. What I did realize is when technology accelerates, these things happen to people. What COVID-19 did is it accelerated technology, but it also made us realize that we were human and fragile. So the book has, is even more, resi- I would say, relevant today, not that it was not relevant, and it's only nine, ten months old. Mm-hmm. But without a doubt, there are a couple of things that I wouldn't change in the book, but there are people that basically have asked me, like, what do you think about this whole world? So I then wrote a piece called The Great Reinvention, which was so popular that I eventually got it made into a little e-booklet, which I will send you all if you haven't seen it. And maybe in show notes, people can look at it. It's completely free. It's like a 15-minute read, which mm-hmm. talks about this great reinvention. And then uh, about a month and a half ago, I basically wrote six things to do for the next six months, because the next six months are like a mulligan. They're just mm-hmm. going to be like the previous six months. So what do you do? And I've also now recently written something where people said, which I call the great rewiring of 
industry. But broadly, what I suggested in April and May, which is why people are taking me relatively seriously today, they still laugh all the time, but sometimes they take me seriously, is because I said there was going, this was going to be long-term, I also basically said there was going to be no new normal, there was going to be a new strange Mm. Right. Mm. And, 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 and I basically also said there was going to basically be social issues. This was before George Floyd. I pulled out numbers about Hispanics and African-Americans in the front line and death in the hospitals. And so I, because even in that, I wrote about individuals, business and society. I wrote it all these three. A lot of people said you've integrated everything. And I said, yes, all business people need to integrate individuals, business and society. And they just got focus on one. Well, I'll tell you, um, I, I was pretty late to the Rashad party here, uh, but since reading your book a few months ago, I've now signed up for your newsletter, which is terrific, and, and the great rewiring, and some of these other articles I think are just so on the money, so thought-provoking. So we'll put those links in the show notes, and um, thanks so much for sharing your work with everybody, and thanks so much for spending some time with us on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. Thank you for having me, and uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the you because i knew you before you knew me which is great because if you're smart you know everybody before they know you <laughs> <laughs> you know that's my basic belief so when people said like nobody knows who you are so i said that's good because i'm now learning what everybody else is but you know it's a pleasure being you know with you all on this show well that was great i came to know rashad and his work really even though he'd been on mitch joel's podcast um i had missed that episode it was you that introduced me to him, Steve. And I loved his ideas. I love his concepts and his straightforward uh, candor and how he discusses them. And, and the one concept that jumped out at me that was particularly interesting amongst a bunch of particularly interesting was this idea of the six-month mulligan that COVID has brought us all. What did, what did you think of that in, in the context of your work? Yeah, I was I was really struck by that as well. It's It's funny. I was actually over the weekend thinking about that. I was working on some writing that was trying to, I guess, assess how long we might be Mm. in in this current situation and what that might look like and so forth. And I I did get to kind of a similar view of, well, there are some interesting opportunities that are afforded by being more in lockdown. Uh, And then, you know, there are obviously huge, huge challenges. I hate to give the, it depends answer, Mm. but I think the reality is whether we're talking about our own individual situations or we're talking about the particular companies that so many companies just find themselves in wildly different places, right? You've got the the so-called essential retailers that oftentimes yeah. can barely keep up with mm. the demand. Most of them have significant physical store presence, which means um, well, customers and store personnel need to be in a store. Uh, they're not working remotely, right? And then you've got other companies that, that are working either 100% remotely or largely remotely and have been for mm. months and probably mm. will be for many more months. Yeah, I've called it the sledgehammer or the shockwave, depending on which side of the format you're in or what you're selling. I mean, you, you're really impacted in different ways. I want to pick up on one thing because you both talk about it, managing people remotely in the current era. Now, Rashad, as you did, you wrote his book prior to pre COVID in the before time. You must have, under your purview, you must have managed people remotely, nothing like is happening today. What, what lessons did you learn from that that you bring into the book uh, around around how to keep connected to employees and how they can keep connected to their customers? Well, one thing I think is super helpful is if you have great clarity about where you're going as a company 
and the objectives and goals and all that kind of stuff are clear, it's a little bit easier to delegate and have folks be able to operate pretty independently, regardless of whether they happen to be down the hall from you or or hundreds of miles away. But certainly, you have to work extra hard to stay connected to people when you're not seeing them every day, when you're not able to pick up on their body language. Um, I had a guy who worked for me a number of years ago who ran our um, customer service and operations center. There was a few hundred people that we had in uh, about 800 miles away. And so I would go down there frequently. He would come up. But, uh, you know, we generally were not in the same place all the time. And we would do, you know, as presumed, we would do conference calls and all that kind of stuff. But what I started to learn after a while was that he would say things, uh, but he had kind of, he didn't have a very good poker face. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the whole kind of body language part of it took me a while to realize what was really mm. going on. And mm. so uh, I had to work harder on that. I mean, that was a very particular experience, but I think more broadly, certainly teams, just the social aspect of being in a workplace and being able to just pop into the other person's office to ask them a question or, or whatever it might be creates a whole different dynamic. So I think there's much more planning that needs to go into a significant work from home environment. And it depends on the type of workers that you have. Like if you're, you know, writing code all day, you know, you can write code just about anywhere if you're more of an individual contributor. If there are teams that really need to collaborate, um, certainly there are tools like Slack and other things that have enhanced that. But you really have to work extra hard, I think, to keep that sense of connection going. Now, let's take that same thought and apply it to being human-centered as a retailer who's many of their customers now are shifting online. They're, they're afraid to be in your stores. Is it, is, I, I perceive that it's much harder now in the COVID era to connect the way you describe with customers? Is, is, is it just back to these fundamental principles of empathy and trying to understand that? Because you have minimal contact with people, certainly in the way you used to, whether it's through a plexiglass screen or behind masks or any of the things we never could have imagined. This friction now is everything we do. So is it harder now? And, and what's your advice to retailers about maintaining your humanity in, in such a time? Well, in this particular case, humanity or sense of empathy to me, works at two levels. There's the broader, we get that you're experiencing stress. You may not be able to uh, pay your bills. You may not be able to interact with us in the way you want to. And and that would lead to mm-hmm. some new practices and policies that probably affect um, your enterprise more broadly. In other cases, if you've got a business model that is very much built on personal connection, uh, you know, you think about the the uh, fashion industry, for example, or personal shopping, right? Where you're working one-on-one with a client, mm-hmm. you're trying things on, putting outfits together, that that sort of thing that would typically happen if you're not independent would typically happen in a store. And now for the most part, that's not, that's not happening. So you have to try to get as close to creating that, that personal relationship, but doing that at a distance using technology. Uh, so that's just fundamentally harder. I mean, I think, I think, being realistic about what the constraints are and doing the best you can. And sometimes just saying, you know, this sucks, right? Like this sucks. We don't like this. Like, I think that's part of what Rashad talks about with vulnerability is Mm. the ability uh, or the willingness to say, I don't know, or I need help. Or frankly, 
this is not what I'm good at. Uh, just that, that honesty and transparency, I think it, it was certainly important uh, before the, the pandemic, uh, but we're all going through, or most of us are going through some pretty harsh, harsh times and just an incredible amount of change and disruption and, and stress, right? Of different kinds. So I think just seeing, uh, acknowledging the other person as a human being, not a target customer or a transaction can go a long way, whether you were able to see them in the store, whether you're Skyping with them or whatever you might be doing with a virtual try on or something or live chatting, (laughs) you know, whatever, whatever that looks like. Well, there's a a retailer in Canada, Lee Valley tools. uh, I interviewed them for the voice of retail podcast, Robin Lee, the um, names on the building founding family. And and they just sent out a, a long, great email to their customers basically saying, listen, we're trying really hard to get everything in stock, but that may not all work out. Like it's, you know, just be, imagine just before the holidays sending a note like that. Uh, you know, it, it, I think it did so well for them. It got a lot of, uh, a lot of publicity and they got great feedback for it because it, it is what is happening, right? The supply chains are, are fragile and, and just taking that truth and transparency, that empathy. Listen, listen, we know it's an important time for you. We're trying as hard as we can. Um, so, you know, we're seeing examples of exactly what you're describing. Well, listen, let's uh, let's leave it there. It's great episode again on on uh, being human centered uh, uh, as we continue to work through our essentials. Um, Steve, why don't you read us out? If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. We'd appreciate a rating and a review and be sure and recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail brand or CPG industry. I'm Steve Dennis. You can learn more about me on stephenpdennis.com and be sure and look for me on LinkedIn and Twitter for my latest insights. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast. You can learn more about me on www.meleblanc.co. Steve, have a safe week and we'll talk to you soon. Likewise.